Hello and welcome everyone to our Gem Pursuit. My name is Matthew Weldon and I'm joined in our magical and mysterious pursuit to the world of antique and vintage jewellery by my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Hello, Elise. Hi, everybody. This week, it's Halloween, so we are going to be talking about the hairy and scary forms of jewellery. Oh, terrifying. This week, it's all about hair jewellery and taxidermy. So it's literally a dead up. Sounds super exciting and just a little bit scary, just the appropriate amount, though, I promise you. Um, For those of a nervous disposition, you'll be just fine. But let's get started. So first... Oh, Felice, I suppose it's good to understand a bit of the history and background to these different pieces. And there's kind of two main categories that we're going to look at. There's the hair jewellery, which is obviously the hairy part, and the scary part, which kind of includes the taxidermy and a few other little things. So let's start off with the hair jewellery. What have you come across now in your research for that? So this is one that gets a lot of people quite, they think it's quite gross, Right. So if you think about hair, most people think about hair. It's either on your head or or it's not on your head. And when it's not on your head, it's in a ball on the ground and nobody wants to have anything to do with it. So that is kind of like why people think it's ill. But 17th century is where we start off this kind of tale of, of hair and in particular hair art. Remembering that in the 17th century, living after the age of 40 was quite a rarity, right? So we're looking at like quite a a low mortality rate, people having quite a short lifespan and also no way of kind of like remembering loved ones the way that we remember loved ones today. So... 17th century onwards for approximately 350 years, we have a wealth of different hair arts that were used in different ways. So we're not just talking about jewellery, but you'll see a lot of portraiture. Um, Other things include like needlework and hair flowers and bouquets that have been made out of hair all of these different kinds of um, forms of artwork done with human hair. And that's really where where we're beginning today. Yeah, and I suppose at the outset, when you think about it, it's a perfect material for, well, for artworks and for jewellery because, I mean, the first thing that makes it a, a good candidate is that it doesn't decay. So it's got longevity. It's gonna, if it's worked in the correct way, it in theory could last forever. And, you know, obviously uh, we have quite a few pieces of hair jewellery and I can testify firsthand that they last very well. You know, and there's different ways that they work them. And obviously as a piece of jewellery, it has to be wearable and it has to work day to day kind of thing. So there's really two main types. Yes. So the first type that I would talk about would be the earliest type. Now, remembering we're only going to be talking about two types today, but hair art was something that was 
you know, had, there's a, there's a wealth of different ways that hair was worked. We also have to remember that different cultures also used hair in different ways as well. So what we're focusing on is really what was celebrated more in the Western world. So, um, there's other cultures that used hair in different ways as trophies and things like that as well. So we're, we're not saying that this is all encompassing, but we're just talking about the pieces that we come across and that are quite collectible in the antique jewelry world. Um, and they start off in really two different types of hair art. The first one would be from around the 1830s and it's called table worked hair, which is basically what it says on the tin. It is hair that was basically worked the same way that bobbin laces worked, which is hair that is captured with bobbins and then um, in different parts. And then in the center of the table, there is a hole and then they feed the hair through that hole and they weave it into different patterns, um, very similar to the way that lace, the handmade lace would have been made. So... Um, We'll get back into what is the best examples later of this particular type of artwork and you'll be really surprised in what actually this type of technique creates. Yes, and um, yeah, some really great examples we can go back to and have a look at. The other main type of hair jewellery that you'll come across is what they call palace hair jewellery, which is usually, well, it can be seen in many different formats, but typically it's either a brooch or a locket or some piece of jewellery and the hair is set uh, inlaid into it and then typically a piece of rock crystal is put on top and that keeps it in place and then if you look behind it you'll see the design that of the hair that's put into it which actually is another very interesting part of hair jewellery is that the designs of the hair I mean it, it's a it's a memento of someone who you've loved who you've lost or it's not always so morbid and keeping with the Halloween theme, we could just go with the morbidity. But sometimes it was just a love lock, right? So a lock of hair of someone you loved. But it was really important to the people who were making this. So we, whether it was palace hair, jewelry that I'm talking about now, or table worked hair, that they actually got the same hair back that they put in. So you will see various qualities of the the weave, if you want to call it that, in both types, because Often when people gave the hair in, you know, there's always a question mark whether they got the same hair back. So often they actually did the hair part themselves and they got the jeweler to set it or do the rest just to ensure it was the same, the same actual hair. Yeah. So it was actually quite a stylish thing for um, gentlemen and ladies to actually do themselves, which was, you know, styling the, the hair. Um, that would go into tokens of love. Basically, the hair that you could have in your locket or brooch or bracelet or ring or a number of different jewellery items, all of those would have come from either a lover, a soldier going to war, a child, a sister, a brother, a friend. So, like today we kind of look back at it and we think, and we actually touch on this quite a lot in our um, episode on morning jewelry about why people keep kind of tokens of like 
There's also jewelry that has baby teeth in it from the Victorian period, like the milk teeth that children have. And there's other things that today are considered quite morbid. But when you think of the 17th century, you know, living to your 40, like would be very close to our expiration date now, Matthew. And <laughs> no, no, no comments. No, no comment. <laughs> and the thing is, is like, you know, who who's going to remember you? You've got your loved ones who are going to be left behind. They have literally no other trace of you. Yeah. And I mean, it, this is even before photography. Like, so this, that obviously would be a way that people would keep mementos. You know, we'll come to, you know, miniature and portraits is a different thing altogether, but a lock of hair is a perfect one. And it's quite a, I think it's quite like a, an intimate or like a close it's memory. It's literally a part of you. It grew from you. So it is a part of the person. Um, so it is, you know, there is a, a certain kind of intimacy connected to hair. Like even today, a lot of mothers will save the first curl of their child still, you know, because it's quite intimate. It's your child, it's your first child, or you want to keep that kind of token of that time that you remember. The child won't remember it, but you'll remember it. And it's kind of that intimacy. But there is a number of reasons why it became so popular. First off, there were very strict rules that were governing dress and social behaviours, especially during the times of mourning during the reign of Queen Victoria. Now, it wasn't until 1861 when the Prince Consort died that those rules became even more enhanced. She went quite what we would consider today quite overboard with her mourning of, of her husband, Although he was quite young, so for her it was devastating to lose him, right up to the fact that she continued to set out his clothes until the day she died, as if he was still there. So her her period of mourning kind of really... The catalyst for a lot of the hair jewellery. It, it was. It, it, it also became kind of like the industry of death. There became a full industry kind of surrounding death because of his death and her mourning. Like Whitby, where Jet is actually um, my, was mined at the time, had over 1,400 people working there specifically on Jet. So it really was what they considered at the time and what we now call the industry of death surrounding mourning jewellery. And hair was definitely a part of that sentimentality. But not only were, were, was hair considered quite precious, there were other things as well. So that, that the Victorians in particular, so the Victorians, I mean, they were party animals, absolute party animals. And they had a, a, a diverse range of things that they liked to, well, a lot of the things that they wore uh, as jewelry, but also as just general clothing, they, it was brand new, so it was such a bit of a novelty factor as well. But they were party animals, so they like to they like to dress up, and they like to have the unusual things that people would comment on. So this is a strange list of things that they used to wear. Now. This is <laughs> some of these. I don't know if you're thinking in your if you're thinking in your head. I mean, it was it was a while ago, and, and I was just about to say it was a while ago. You know, just a hundred or so years ago. It was a while ago. Yeah, but this is the great thing about antiques is that they, they, they always make sense at the time. Like, 
And even today, like you, you pointed out a few minutes ago, at least the people still want to use someone's hair. So like that human side of it, you want a memento of someone or, you, or a lock of your loved one's hair, right? So yeah. So human nature doesn't change a lot, but some parts do change a bit. So a lot of these things we actually don't do anymore. <laughs> um, but so just to give you... I love it. So just to, uh, just to like, uh, you know, simplify that. Some things really don't change, but then they really do. <laughs> I think that makes perfect sense. Actually, that makes perfect sense. And you're let's let's elaborate slightly. So yeah, so we're, that- we're dancing around the subject right now because one thing that today, when we when I was actually doing my last bit of research on on this, was we watched a <laughs> we watched a little snippet of um of antique road show because they were showing a collection of these pieces which are now considered quite rare um and it was taxidermy pieces now I'll quickly explain what what taxidermy is taxidermy is the practice of preserving an animal or insect through kind of stuffing and mounting the de- the deceased item right so um, a lot of the times you if you're in Dublin in particular you could go to the museum the natural history museum and that here in Ireland is known as the dead zoo and it basically has a lot of taxidermy animals in there that you can view including an, an Irish elk actually which is extinct it looks like a deer but it was absolutely enormous so yeah sorry yeah, so exactly, but the that's what taxidermy is. If you would like a night to see a really good example, um, our natural history museum here in Dublin is a fantastic place to go, and it's free, so it's a great place to take the family and teach them about animals without the animals actually being in cages. But taxidermy was something that was kind kind of like came into its height in around eighteen sixty five in Europe. And it kind of stems from the Victorians. They, if they couldn't eat something, they wanted to wear it. So we see a lot of like plumes of feathers, for instance, are the first thing that kind of comes onto the scene. We see it in um, headpieces worn by women. We also see it in hats worn by women. And they go right up to the 20s and 30s. Yes. Um, obviously from the Victorian period as well. Interesting, yeah, if they can't eat it, they'd, they'd want to wear it. But a diverse range of things as well. So feathers was one, beetles and insects. So, But I'm not talking about insect designed jewellery. They literally used beetles as an example. You know, used them, made them in such a way that they wouldn't decay and then set them into typically brooches or bracelets and necklaces and earrings they could really be used for any piece uh, and they actually have a beautiful color we've one in the shop at the moment a green beetle brooch incredible like lush green it's almost luminescent that's another example of something that they use i think we mentioned earlier uh, it was not taxidermy, but they use teeth a lot in jewelry which would be pretty scary and also tiger's claws is something that they also used to use. So remembering any kind of like hunting trip, any kind of memento that you can get 
where we're looking at birds then replacing feathers on hats. So you had birds nestled in hats um, and then that wasn't enough. Then we have birds that are bird heads on earrings. Then we have bird heads on necklaces. We have foxes that are fox heads that are used as scarves. We have, you know, a number of different animals that are used in uh, in this way. And you have to remember as well, even if you go back to our Jean Toussaint episode in season seven, she was fascinated. Uh, she went on a trip to Africa and she saw you know the wildlife and this really inspired her different designs. But you have to remember at the time, this is probably the first time people are seeing this these types of new animals and bright colours and things. So, but in, there was a book actually called, and it's a bit of a, bit of a mouthful now, so just bear with me. It was called Beetle Abominations and Birds and Bonnets, Zoological Fantasy in the Late 19th Century Dress, right? And they said that, you know, and don't forget it's the age of the Industrial Revolution as well, right? So the proliferation of such adornment in the middle class life relied an increasingly disengagement from nature brought about by the Industrial Revolution and provided an opportunity for women to reconnect with nature. And obviously a lot of this jewellery and dress was aimed at women at that time. So, um, yeah, Also, it's such a status symbol. Like imagine, oh, yeah, I'm walking in and I'm wearing a Brazilian beetle that has an iridescent colour that you've never seen on a plain brown boring beetle that you see every day in the UK or in Ireland. Like, I'm wearing one from Brazil. Like, where's your beetle? Like, your beetle's brown. So, like, it is a status thing too. And a tiger's call. Like, most people read about tigers in books and never see them, but I have one and I'm wearing one. You know, those kind of things was, those kind of things were very much status-based and showed how well-traveled and well-rounded you were as well. So in this series, uh, we look at these dead arts and obviously we give a bit of history and a bit of insight to them. But it's also one question we like to ask is, you know, why are they dying or dead? Or why do we think they're dying or dead? And it's always well worth asking the question and doing a bit of investigation to this one. So, Lise, what do you reckon the dead arts, taxidermy and hair? (laughs) Well, to begin with, with hair... I think that the reason why it died out was because of photography. I really think that's the reason why it's gone. Because if you think about the ways that we can capture our loved ones today, we can capture them through photography, through video, through voice messages, writing, all of those kinds of things, which wouldn't have been readily available to everyone remembering that not, that not so long ago being literate was like... A big thing. A big, um, again, social, uh, showing your social status, being able to read and write was was not something that even the high class, higher classes of women were able to do. And this kind of more well-educated um, population along with the advancement of technology that allowed us to capture um, our loved ones more readily. I think that's the reason why hair art fell out of favour. 
because it's number one, it's a difficult thing to work and it is really painstaking to do. So, you know, if you look at how fine our hair is, trying to actually make something beautiful out of that is a difficult thing. But also like if you've got a photo of someone that you could put in a locket or a piece of their hair, the likelihood is that you'd prefer to see their face than just a piece that of their hair that was on them. Yeah, and sometimes you'll see both. Yes, you know, I mean, and for a long period of time, actually. You yeah. have lockets and, and a photo, which is kind of the transition period, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think with the hair as well, there were, in the Edwardian period in particular, there were, and the best description that I could find for it was, there was theories about hygiene. So, obviously, at that time, issues with, you know, things that domesticate in your hair. Is that, a, is that, is that, is that even a word? I don't know. But anyway, we're going with that. Live. Live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't use it. Creepy crawlies. Let's just, let's just like add to the, the scariness of the episode. We're going to talk about lice. <laughs> that is scary, right? Or bed bugs. We don't go there. But, but I mean, it nowhere actually says that. I couldn't find any reference that specifically said that's what they were talking about. But reading between the lines, it was, it was something like that. So, I mean, it wouldn't take very much publicity or news or people talking about that in order for hair jewellery to, to go out of fashion. And as we discovered, I think in some of our previous episodes, there's a trend like when when something that's very complex and very niche and very difficult to do, when a certain generation doesn't really use it or doesn't engage with it, then there's not the sufficient amount of people following through with it to continue it. And then it's kind of lost and, and, and dies out. So it's, uh, it's just a, the cyclical life of, uh, of how uh, some of these dead arts, and I think hair jewelry was probably a bit of a victim of that, but not everywhere as we'll come to. Exactly. But the other art that we're talking about today, the scary art, which is taxidermy, there is actually a really good reason behind why that died out. And we should actually be quite happy, I think, that it, we no longer want to wear everything that flies and lives and breathes on this earth. And that's because really we became more educated about our environment and the fact that, you know, what we take out of our environment and can't put back or don't allow for it to replenish itself that we lose. So, you know, we have a lot of endangered species today and we're, you know, we're fighting to try and keep them. And one of the um, laws that was passed in 1947 meant that anything prior to March 1947 now requires a license um, to say why the taxidermy piece was created and uh, by whom and for what reason. And, you know, it's a lot more strictly governed now than it was previously. So um, taxidermy items, if you are looking to collect, which we'll talk a little bit about next, you really have to be careful about, you know, what you're collecting, how we know that it's prior to 1947 and shipping it because if it if it is something that is after 1947 it's considered something that requires a license 
still to come, even though this kind of jewellery is very, very rare, we'll share some places to look if you want to add it to your collection. We'll also tell you about one of our two famous examples of hair art and taxidermy. First, we have some very beautiful new pieces we've recently just got in uh, to our, and it's on our Instagram. Elise, can you tell me about one or two of them? Of course. I love our Instagram and in particular the newest piece, which has gone up a, a few weeks ago now, but I thought it would be a great time to talk about this particular one because it has one of the dead art actually on it and it has enameline a blue enamel so at the moment we have this incredible etruscan revival cuff bangle that's come into our collection it has a kind of bombay shape which clips over the wrist the front of the the bracelet has or bangle has three domed oval plaques the central one has diamonds and coral in a star shape and then surrounding the coral we have this beautiful bright forget-me-not blue uh, that just contrasts so beautifully not only with the gold but also with the coral in the center a really striking victorian bangle uh, from the mid 19th century incredible piece and if you'd like to see it you will be able to see it on our instagram at courtville antiques and of course you will find a direct link to those photos in the description area of this podcast now matthew we're getting on to the best examples so this is for those and i we do have we do have people, for those who are like, nobody collects this stuff. We do have people who collect and are very avid collectors of hair art and taxidermy. Now, taxidermy, I have to say to you, I have I have come across quite a few pieces in my time, but they're very rare on the ground, extremely rare on the ground. But Matthew, what errors would you say if you, if somebody's really interested in seeing these different forms of art, where would you look? Well, for hair, well, and, and taxidermy really, but they're both really Victorian pieces. You'll see a lot of examples. And as we mentioned, as hair doesn't decay, they do survive quite well. And they're often made and you know, they can be in, incorporated into rings or if they're pallet um, uh, hair, they're actually covered by rock crystals. So they really survive a long time. So where I would say to look, I'd go into a, a shop that specialised in Victorian jewellery. They would definitely have some examples of hair, jewellery, and they possibly have some taxidermy as well. But also, if you look, if your grandparents or parents have a collection of jewellery they've inherited, always a good chance that they'll have. A, we get we get offered quite a bit of it, less and less now, I have to say, but it would be from that period, anywhere from 1800 to about 19. 15-ish. If you get into the 20s, what you'll see is the headpieces with feathers that they can be from the 20s. And if you're talking about some of the more unusual things, the baby teeth, 
you'll see that in the in the twenties. Now, what I would say about those is, if you're looking to find it, they actually, you know, I, I before I really saw teeth jewelry or dental dental jewelry, and I'm not talking about grills here. Right? The original grill. The original grill <laughs> was literally somebody's grill, right? They don't look like you think they look, right? And I'd say anyone here, if you Google it, go look. Either be a, we'll put a link in the notes for this podcast of an example of of dental jewelry. They actually kind of look like they fit into rings and bracelets and necklaces pretty well, like because let's not forget they're they're a polished surface, right? They're they're white, obviously, so white against the gold, they stand out, uh, and they've got a high polish, right? So they actually kind of, in a way, sort of look like a gemstone, and like it's not like it's not like someone's wisdom tooth, right? It's not like a long, it's usually like baby teeth, right? Yeah, so, no, it's it's the milk teeth. So you see, you see a lot of it in children's teeth, basically, when you lose your first wobbly tooth. It is really an interesting concept because I think. Quite a few parents would, you know, keep their child's first tooth that they lost. I remember, you Sorry, know. after, I mean, obviously after the, the tooth fairy gets it, sometimes the tooth fairy then gives it to the, the parents after. Like, yes, Matthew, the yeah. tooth fairy. <laughs> but it's really interesting that you, like, there's so much to cover with this, right? Because we've taken on really two different dead arts for this. So it's like, you know, where to look for. Really... What I would say to you, if you really, really want a fabulous palette hair art piece, 1840s to 1850s is where it's at, right? You're going to see like the painstaking skill. You're going to see the patience of the artist putting together these pieces. It really is. Some of them are fancy landscapes. They have curls, which look like three-dimensional feathers. You've got elaborate weaving that looks like baskets. You've got weeping willows, which you would swear looking at it is a tree, but it's hair. It's it's fabulous. So if you're really, really looking for something that is quite unusual, 1840s to 1850s is really where it's at for palette hair art. In rare, rare cases, you can also find ships done in hair art on jewelry. So really, really cool. Happy hunting for those pieces out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, the antique ones there, you're, you're definitely going to have to go search for them. They're really rare. We have a beautiful pair of hair earrings, but I'm, you know, that's tablework hair. But other than that, we've, we've, we have beautiful palette pieces, but the hair, the, the tablework can be super rare. And that boat sounds really, that ship sounds amazing. Interestingly enough, though, there is one place today doing modern hair art and it's famous for it. They do jewelry and they do other pieces. It's in Europe. Any ideas of a country? It's pretty obscure now. It's. I'm gonna say Moldova. It's not Moldova. Actually, that reminded me. We better get some gem pursuit going. A uh, gem trivial pursuit. Uh, no, it's actually in a town. It's in a fairly quiet region of Sweden, and the town is called Vamhus Mora. Vamhus, and I think the region might be called Mora. I'm entirely sure how the Swedish addresses are listed out. If you're Swedish, get in contact with us and let us know. Yeah, and I know we definitely do have a few Swedish people uh, listening to the podcast for sure. So, but they have had a tradition for over 200 years continuously of doing hair jewelry and hair art. And you can still go there today and it's still an industry 
How uh, cool. So it's not actually dead. No, I and mean, we said it's dead or it's dying, right? Yeah. And it's it's definitely greatly reduced, but there is a stronghold there in the middle of Sweden uh, still doing some really good examples today. So lastly, Matthew, we're coming into our famous example section. What is your famous example? This piece I'm going to talk about, it's not, it's not a particularly famous piece, but the image of it we have, and we'll put it in the link, the, the, the notes of this podcast, just so you can see it, right? But I think one of the things that always strikes me is, is the dental jewelry that we mentioned, right? Just because it is so... It's such an alien concept, in a way, to wear that jewellery, right? But, but back then it wasn't, right? So, so there was one really cool teeth ring, <laughs> tooth ring. There were several tooths. It was a teeth ring, right? So today you're the tooth fairy. Yes, I could be if you're looking for some <laughs> Victorian tooth jewellery. But this particular <laughs> ring, it was sold in auction, uh, I believe in 2019 or 2017, but it sold for £3,400 sterling in the UK, uh, plus fees. So it must be $5,500-ish or kind of €5,000, something like that, right? But it is like a classic Victorian set ring that can, the typical carved half hoop rings that you get from the Victorian period. But they, um, they're usually set with amethysts, they can set with rubies, things to be set with sapphires and diamonds, different combinations of stuff. But this carved half hoop is actually set with teeth the whole way around and it's it looks like the whole the Elisa's gesturing that she doesn't like the idea but it actually does it actually looks like a whole set of veneers if you imagine curved around and set in a ring and it's got little diamond spacers that kind of just twinkle in between it but so someone will always be smiling on you yeah no it's it's it literally it looks like a smile which makes it quite interesting. But I mean, it, let's not forget as well, like people didn't live as long back then, but also the infant mortality was way higher, way higher. So your children's teeth could, were, were had a, had a level of significance, right? So even Queen Victoria's, her eldest daughter, her first, her first tooth was converted into a piece of jewellery. So I think this, you know, talking about scary pieces, this is, definitely one to have a look at. It's not particularly famous. It doesn't have an amazing problem. It's going to be but famous it's, now. It's going to be more famous now for sure. And definitely one to have a look at. So um, That's really cool. That's a really cool piece to do actually. So I've got some, I've got to live up to this now people. So let's see if I can pique your interest with my piece. Should we say pique your interest or beak your interest? <laughs> <laughs> had to get that little pun in there because you missed out on it last time. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. So the lapidary episode, there was, yeah, that's gem polishing. He, he hit rock bottom. Yeah, that, that was, one. yeah, no, yeah, I did. That was the, that was the point I was looking for at the time. <laughs> I know, but, I know. That's why yeah. I just stole it from you. Yeah. Now I don't have another one. Anyway, I know. <laughs> anyway, go on ahead. I rocked you. <laughs> I rocked. <laughs> oh God. Anyway, so, um, Taxidermy is a really interesting one, right? So I have an auntie in Australia who's my dad's sister. Her name is, is Su- Susan, Susie. 
Um, no, she's not taxidermied, but uh, she is my auntie. And I was actually kind of introduced to taxidermy through her because she used to have a fox head scarf that belonged to my great grandmother, my grandfather's mother, who died when my grandfather was quite young. So that's, it's always kind of piqued my interest a little bit taxidermy because of my early rememberings of this um, fox head scarf that my auntie Susie had. And what I'm going to be talking about today is a pair of earrings that is actually in the V&A Museum. That's great because a lot of people will actually be able to go and visit these. Then. Yeah, you'll actually be able to go and see these. They're made by a very famous maker, Harry Emanuel, who was known to kind of pioneer the art of using hummingbirds, in particular hummingbird heads in jewelry items. And this is a pretty fabulous, a pretty fabulous pair of earrings that kind of have a very Victorian border around them and beautiful plumes of uh, red and orange and yellow iridescent feathers and golden beaks. Now, the reason why I chose these, they were made in 1865, which would have been at actual the very peak of this art form, in particular with the hummingbirds, is because I have a story about a necklace that I was involved in actually selling that had hummingbirds' heads on them. Now, anybody who's seen a hummingbird, they're actually really small, they're tiny little birds. Like they're really, really small. Like, I don't know, maybe... Let's put it this way. They get preyed on by praying mantises. So they're smaller than insects, some insects. Yeah, yeah. so their heads are really petite. And I remember when I I was working in London at the time and a piece came into us and it had three, it was a Victorian piece and it had three hummingbird heads on it. And it wasn't like the ones that you see in the V&A Museum. If you, if you look, we'll, we'll put a direct link um, in, our, in our notes for you as well so that you can see a picture of these hummingbird earrings that were made by Harry Emanuel in around 19, uh, 1865. This particular necklace was actually in better condition than these hummingbirds, right? Two of them. It had three going across the chest, with yellow gold swags of chain going down around them. So you had three hummingbird heads going across with gold beaks. The hummingbirds actually had uh, blue and green and yellow iridescent feathers. So when you would move them around, it was like really, really striking. And we we got this necklace in and we were looking at it. We're like, this is crazy. This is a crazy piece, but... We looked at one of the hummingbird heads and where the golden beak was coming out of the, the actual head of the, of the hummingbird, it was collapsing. So you could see the inner part of the, the bird. It, it basically had disintegrated away. And we looked at each other and we were like, what are we going to do with this? Like, what are we going to do with this necklace? It's everything about it is absolutely perfect. It just needs some restoration work done to the hummingbirds, to one of the hummingbird, the side hummingbirds' faces. And we had no idea what to do. 
Like there's no workshop in London, Europe, anywhere to kind of take this hummingbird necklace to. I don't even know where you'd start looking for that, actually. Exactly. uh... And that's where we were. We were stuck because we knew that we had something really special, really rare. And the two that were that were on the necklace that were perfect were perfect. Pristine. Yeah, they were absolutely perfect. So what we actually did was we started going on Instagram and looking up taxidermists. And we looked through the before and afters of people who had repaired and we found a hobbyist on Instagram who, it wasn't her full-time job, she just loved doing it. She would go to charity shops and she would buy old taxidermy pieces and then she would restore them. And we had pictures of her before and afters of these taxidermy pieces and we're like, well, we may as well try it, you know. And we call, we we messaged her on Instagram. She sent us her address, and we sent the piece to her to to say, you know, tell us, see what you can do. In about six weeks, we get it back from her, and it is pristine. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the other two t- taxidermy heads and this one. Absolutely magnificent work. You know, we were looking at it, going, "This is." Absolutely amazing. She sent it back with a note that said, thank you so much, because we had asked her to invoice us. She said, thank you so much. This is one of the most amazing pieces I've worked on and refused payment because she wanted to work on it. Obviously, we we, we didn't take that as a, as a be all end all. She was looked after for sure. But this was like, this is really one of the ways that I can express to you how much this is a dead art. It really is something that we struggled as people within this industry to try and salvage such an amazing piece from over a hundred years ago. Sometimes we really have to do the extraordinary and the unordinary to make these pieces come back to life. I think that's a great piece of work from someone to actually find the right person to actually do that it's um, it was you know it's just very pragmatic I think it's just very pragmatic I know but after seeing like some really weird like you know foxes that looked like maybe a sea otter before in the before picture and then the after picture how they're able to bring it back to life is amazing I mean like people who are hobbyists who enjoy enjoy taxidermy and enjoy this kind of art form it really is like a special special art to be able to do it's a talent to be able to do that Mm, yeah definitely it's an art for sure it's a skill but you definitely need to have the eye for it definitely so thank you for sharing that one with me Lisa I think that's uh I've seen piece like that once I'd say before uh, but it was just it was um I think it only had one left on it. It might have had more hummingbirds on it at the start, but it really sounds super interesting. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. We are going to wrap it up there on our hairy and scary episode. If anyone has managed to listen the whole way through without getting too terrified for enough. (laughs) We'd like to say, of course, we are on Instagram at Courtville Antiques. And we have some really cool pieces of jewellery from this time period. So well worth having a look at our feed and just scrolling through and seeing some examples of this. 
And most of all, I suppose I'd like to say thank you all very much for listening. Really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we have notes on what we spoke about and links and anything else you might need in the description area of this podcast. I'd like to take the chance here just to thank my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. And happy Halloween, everybody. And of course, our podcast producer, dustpod.io. Until the next time, for me, Matthew Wellen, your host, see you all very, very soon. <laughs>